0: You're listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. This month on the University Series, we are speaking with Dr. Tom Higby from Utah State University. Dr. Higby is a professor and department head in the Department of Special Education and Rehabilitation Counseling at Utah State and the Executive Director of the Autism Support Services Education, Research, and Training Program. He is a doctoral level BCBA and a licensed behavior analyst in the state of Utah. His research focuses on the development of effective educational and behavioral interventions for children with autism spectrum disorders and related disabilities, as well as the development of effective training strategies for teaching parents and professionals to implement effective interventions. He is a former associate editor for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and the European Journal of Behavior Analysis. Dr. Higby is committed to the dissemination of effective behavioral interventions and has helped to create intensive behavior analytic preschool and school programs for children with autism and related disorders in Brazil, Russia, Portugal, and throughout his home state of Utah. So without further ado, Utah State University. So today we are here with Dr. Tom Higby from the Utah State University. So thank you so much for being here and talking with me today.
1: Uh, thanks for having me on the show.
0: And I'm going to actually pass it right over to you f- to give us a general overview of the program.
1: Great, um, thanks Sean. It's, <clears throat> it's a pleasure to have a chance to talk about our PhD program here. And one thing that I will start off with is, is putting out there right now that there are actually two separate PhD programs in behavior analysis at my university, Utah State University. There's an applied behavior analysis program that's housed in my department that I'll be talking with you about today. There's also an experimental behavior analysis program that is housed in our department of psychology. Uh, And so depending on your interests, if they lean more towards experimental uh, versus more applied, uh, would determine kind of which program you apply to. And one of the things I'll talk with you about though, is there's a lot of overlap between the programs. And that's one of the things that I think is actually a cool feature of our program is the degree of collaboration that we have with our experimental colleagues upstairs. So just as a brief overview, uh, our PhD program in applied behavior analysis is designed to be a post-master's PhD program, which is also different than some other programs that are in psychology departments. It's uh, generally expected that somebody would have already completed a master's degree in behavior analysis or some related field. Uh, and most of our applicants will already be certified uh, at the BCBA level, uh, although there is a path to certification for those who aren't certified. Another interesting feature of our program is that it's actually housed within a multidisciplinary PhD program. And so uh the phd is actually called disability disciplines and then you have a specialization in applied behavior analysis we also have specializations within the broad program in audiology pathokinesiology rehabilitation counseling traditional special education as well as speech language pathology and the cool part about that is that you get a chance to take coursework alongside these other professionals and you know one criticism that's often been levied against behavior analysts is that they only know how to talk to uh, each other and by having the opportunity to take coursework alongside other professionals in training you really learn how to talk about your discipline with other people who might not share your same jargon and lingo and represent our science uh, to other professionals that you'll probably have a chance to collaborate with once you get out of the program so it's a great opportunity to to practice that collaboration and multidisciplinary work uh, while you're still in your training program. So I think that's uh, a really cool feature. It's designed to be a four-year program. Uh, So approximately three years worth of coursework followed by a one-year dissertation um, capstone project. Uh, So that's kind of a broad overview. I can tell you other cool features about the program. if you just get me started talking, I'll probably go on forever. Um, We kind of, um, we're not a giant program in the sense of at any given point in time, we probably have, you know, 10, 15 total students in the program, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. Uh, but the good part about that is you get a chance to interact with the faculty on a more, uh, you know, personal basis than you might in a larger program. We, we follow generally kind of a junior colleague model. Uh, in the sense that you're admitted to work with a specific faculty member, uh, and they're responsible. They're they're your primary academic advisor, and they're responsible kind of for overseeing your program and working with you to determine what the uh, set of activities are that'll best prepare you for whatever your next uh, step is going to be. And having that kind of mentorship relationship, uh, I think is a really positive feature of the program uh, because you get to get training from people who are doing the job that uh, you hope to do. And our program is is very much geared towards preparing people for academic positions, people who want to be faculty, who want to teach in university settings and conduct research in university settings, which doesn't mean that everyone that graduates takes that path. I've had students who have have taken high-level clinical positions as well, but the program is really geared towards uh, folks who want to join academia and uh, train other professionals and, and practitioners. So um, other cool features of the program, you know, uh, it's super practical. You know, I said that, that kind of that junior colleague model, you know, so instead of having a comprehensive exam requirement, that's common in a lot of PhD programs right before your dissertation, we converted that <clears throat> into a series of kind of measurable products uh, and internships that folks do along the way. And so we essentially broke down what it means to be an academic. What are all the things that I do as a professor? And we created competencies that all of our students have to demonstrate, but instead of like a one-shot oral examination, they have to do it and demonstrate independence. So for example, uh, with university level teaching, that's one of our uh, core competencies that you have to demonstrate independence with. So typically you'd be paired up with your advisor or some other faculty member to be a, you know, a, a graduate teaching assistant for a semester or two, and then have a chance to independently teach a course either at the undergraduate or master's level. And once you demonstrate a competency at that, you can do that independently with support and supervision, of course. We don't just, it's not like my training where they just gave me a textbook and said, go teach this class. You know, you're teaching it off of your instructor's syllabus and they're they help—they're—they're they're helping you and guide you the whole way. So that university level teaching is one competency. We also have obviously research competencies. The PhD is a research degree. And so uh, you need to demonstrate that you can conduct independent research. That just means you gotta take one project from, initiation all the way up to submission we don't have requirements that the project be accepted but it has to be a submitted for publication another project is learning how to write grants right that's something that faculty do and so we have a requirement that you work on a team of faculty and potentially other students who write a federal level grant um, and so we don't define the role you're not going to be leading that obviously you're not going to be getting the funding for it but you get to see how that process works and so when you go out uh, and in your first academic position, you've got that background. Uh, we use systematic literature reviews. You take a course in how to do a systematic literature review and then you have to do that with a team of other graduate students to pass off that competency. Uh, we have a supervision competency, You know, providing supervision to master's level students. You do that out of the supervision of the faculty until you demonstrate that you can be independent. Let's see, I cross all of them. And that's, that's the, the majority of kind of those competencies It's really done in kind of a supportive way. So if you need to do a couple of practices before you show that you're independent at it, you get that opportunity. So in that way, it can be um, highly customized to the needs of individual students. Our coursework's, I think, really cool too. Because like I was saying, because we have such a great relationship with our our friends upstairs in the psychology department, literally we're in the same building. We're on the third floor, they're on the fourth floor. And so it's not a difficult collaboration to have. we share coursework with them. And so they, they teach our coursework is a combination of applied behavior analysis courses, research methodology, statistics, single-subject methodology, and then experimental theoretical courses. And you get to take um, some of those experimental courses with people like Greg Madden, like Tim Shahan, like Amy Odom, you know, like two of the last three editors of JAP. You get to take coursework with them. Um, and your applied courses are taught by our faculty who are highly competent, well-respected uh, applied behavior analysts. And then the psychology experimental students take courses uh, down in our department uh, on the applied side. And so again, there's that kind of collaboration and intermixing of people who have a more basic uh, bend or people who have a more applied bend, and we try and model that good collaborative behavior. So. One other thing that's important is our our program being housed in a department of special education, the focus is obviously on applied behavior analysis and even more specifically as it relates to uh, people with disabilities and or the application of behavior analysis in school settings. And so again, if you were interested in in organizational behavior management, for example, we'd probably not be a good fit for you because that's not our focus. We're housed within a college of education, within a department of special education. A lot of our research and training focuses on uh, doing behavior analysis, high quality behavior analysis in those contexts.
0: And I think that from what I've heard about the system that is set up, I love hearing about how you're actually teaching your students how what's actually going to happen in the real world and then having them practice that to competency, because I know, I mean, I was able to do this as a project and, you know, I put this on myself and my master's program was, um, was a systematic literature review, but that was on me. (laughs) That wasn't on anybody else. I want to, I'll take full responsibility for that, but, um, it was an absolutely phenomenal experience and I really enjoyed it actually. And I'm not sure that, you know, if, if I hadn't continued, you know, I might not have gotten something like that, necessarily. So it's, I love hearing that you're actually applying what's going to be happening in your students' lives in the real world to what they're actually doing in school. Because I know there can sometimes be a learning curve once you get out, but um, this can help shrink that learning curve as well. And I mean, that kind of gets us into who are some of the faculty, you know, in the program and what is some of the research going on as well?
1: Yeah, great questions. And, and yeah, we intentionally tried to design the program following behavior analytic principles, you know? So we created just kind of like a broad task analysis of, of what it takes to be a successful academic and then create opportunities uh, for practice, feedback, uh, and demonstration of independence, almost you know, like in a behavioral skills training type of model, uh, which I've found to be, Really productive, and students from my lab that have graduated and uh, gone out and taken academic positions have, have consistently let me know that they felt well prepared uh, to take on that role, which is important. So, great. Yeah, we've got a great team of uh, faculty uh, that work on the applied behavior analysis side uh, within our department. Um, I'll leave myself for last because I'm the expert on that topic. Um, We have Dr. Tim Slocum, uh, who has been here at the university for many years, Um, predates me, and I've been here for 20 years. Uh, So Tim's been here for almost 30. His main area of research is uh, direct instruction and uh, curriculum design, uh, specifically related to students with learning disabilities and reading difficulties. So he's a precision teacher and does uh, research in that area. We have Dr. Sarah Pinkelman, Uh, who's been with us for about six years now. Uh, Her main areas of research are doing uh, behavior supports, functional behavioral assessment and intervention. Uh, But more, she does some individual work, but it's mainly at the systems level, working within a a school-wide positive behavior supports model. So if you're familiar with that model of the the tiers, the tiers one, two, and three, and the, the triangle model of supports where there's supports for everybody, supports for some, and supports for the intensive supports for a smaller number. She does a lot of work supporting school districts uh, in impo- applying those types of models while also doing research, kind of that top tier three level, which we think of more as traditional uh, functional assessment and intervention. Uh, those are main, the main interests of her lab. She's also got interests uh, around training practitioners, how to implement those types of uh, school-wide supports, uh, and does a lot of great work in that area. And we also have Dr. Ray Jocelyn, who joined us a couple of, of years ago, who does interesting work also on the functional behavioral assessment side. Uh, he does work uh, with tier one interventions, kind of those universal interventions. He does research on the good behavior game, uh, which is a classroom management tool that's used in a lot of both general education and special education classrooms. He also works with youth in custody programs, so um, so adolescents who are both at risk uh, for failure at school, as well as a, a, who have stuff that has caused them to be incarcerated uh, and he does research at that kind of more traditional intensive um, functional behavioral assessment and intervention level. We also have Dr. Sophia DeGastina, who recently joined our faculty. She works primarily in the early childhood domain and the focus of her research is on uh, early behavioral interventions that are naturalistic or naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions is the term. Uh, using naturalistic strategies to help children with disabilities to acquire the social and language skills they need to be successful in society. And then there's me. Uh, I do work on, I've got a broad range of experience. My main focus uh, since I've been here has been on behavioral acquisition research and early intensive behavioral intervention programs for individuals on the autism spectrum, strategies for supporting uh, their families, and strategies for supporting the um, professionals that work with those uh, students. And so we could talk, obviously I could talk a lot more about my specific research lines, but that's kind of a general overview.
0: And I think that just from, I mean, the faculty alone, I know you mentioned the coursework and things like that as well before, but I think just from the faculty alone, it is such a wide array of the applied settings and the types of experiences that students could potentially get, you know what I mean, with some of the interdisciplinary, um, I know you talked about some of the other, you know, outside of the behavior analytics scope, but also just within the behavior analytics scope as well is phenomenal. And I think with some of the changes that have happened in our world over the last couple of years, that some of these are going to be much more relevant as well and needed much the need for these, some of, you know, these practitioners who are very skilled in this are going to be needed. And um, that kind of brings up my next question is, you know, what are some of these practicum, you know, practical opportunities that the PH students can get within within all of these different realms?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And so I'll, since I talked about my stuff last, last and I'll talk about my stuff first this time. And so um, here on campus, you know, about hmm, in my second year, so in about 2003, I um, created and started an, um, an EIBI program for kids on the autism program that's here on campus. It's called the Assert program. And so it's, We serve about 25 families of kids on the autism spectrum at the preschool uh, age range. So kids ages three to six. uh, And that opportunity is, it's right here on our campus. You know, we we have a beautiful new new building that was built for us just a a couple of years ago. Um, And there are two programs there. We've got a traditional kind of intensive ABA program, kind of one-on-one instruction uh, using modern best practices for individualized instruction. And we also have a small group instruction, uh, kindergarten preparation program for those kids on the autism spectrum who don't need the intensive one-on-one work, who need to learn how to learn in groups, who learn, need to learn how to not always be first in line, you need to learn a little bit of more psychological flexibility, those kind of things. So we have a small group that meets uh, with their, they meet meeting groups of three, so a three-on-one, two days per week, and then uh, one day a week, it's all six of them together in a more large group setting really prepping those kids. These are kids who we're targeting for full inclusion at the kindergarten level and getting them ready for that by learning classroom routines, learning how to behave in groups, follow multi-step directions, and all those things that can trip up some of our kids when they go into the kindergarten. And so um, in addition to that, I also have contracts with um, school districts around the state where we've helped them build behavioral programs. And so usually graduate students who come to my lab, specifically, will spend their first year or two working as case managers within the assert on campus program where they I mean, case managers, but not like you would in re- the real world. They're, they, they're taking they're handling like uh, maybe three or four kids instead of like 20. Um, and, uh, and then as they get more senior and more familiar and more competent, uh, they get a chance to go out and work in the public schools as consultants to help support teachers and behavior analysts who are working in the schools to implement high quality educational programming out on their own. Um, other opportunities that are available, Dr. Ray Jocelyn, and he also has a behavior support clinic, uh, like a functional behavioral assessment outpatient clinic that he operates. Uh, the graduate students working where they see families and clients are over at our uh, clinical services building. He also has contracts with multiple school districts here in our region to provide kind of high-level tier three intensive behavior supports, and his graduate students work out in the schools. Dr. Sarah Pinkelman has the same thing. She's got contracts uh, with school districts in our region where her graduate students have an opportunity to go out and and serve as behavior, both to train behavior specialists and to actually function as behavior analysts working in schools to provide direct support to those school districts. So it's a combination of kind of intensive on-campus experiences and kind of uh, outreach, community-based experiences that students have an opportunity to do. And um, they do that not just for their own experience, that's how most of them are funded. They get their assistantships by virtue of working these 20 hour, uh, twenty hours a week in, in these uh, clinical programs. And through that, they're able to um, pay for their schooling. And those come along with uh, full tuition waivers too, which is nice.
0: Well, they're very nice. <laughs> and there's one thing that I wanna highlight that you said in that, is you use the term psychological flexibility. And some of our listeners may hear that and be like, that's not behavior analytic, but it can be. And I want to point out that it, it just kind of goes back to what you said in the beginning, where you have the, the this program has been developed to work with interdisciplinary fields And it just shows that you're practicing what you're preaching and that, you know, we are working within, you know, with and for all of these other stakeholders, all of these other fields and, um, that we can bring in these, these other words, you know, these other terms that may not seem behavior analytic at their, you know, at the surface level, but it, they can go deeper. And so I really appreciate that. That's something that I work on with my students as well. And um, so I appreciate hearing that. So I want to, I, I, I did just want to highlight that because I, I loved hearing it just flow out while, while you were talking.
1: Well, here's why you, why, why you heard that. And, and something that's actually your question reminds me to mention something else about the program, other collaborations that we have. Uh, in addition to the experimental program upstairs in psychology, they also have a high quality clinical psychology program who just happens to employ two of the top published uh, acceptance and commitment therapy slash training researchers in the country and um, Mike Tuig and Mike Levin who both work upstairs and, um, and so my students actually get a chance to take coursework with them as well that's one of the electives in our program you can take an ACT course uh, from people who are publishing literally hundreds of articles on uh, uh, ACT therapy, ACT training on the behavior analysis side. And so, yeah, it's a, it, we, we try to you know hit all of the, the different areas of our field and, and try and stay current. And, uh, and that's, our students report that that's really positive, the chance to, to reach out like that. And even though they're not going to be clinical psychologists, there are skill sets within that paradigm that can be very beneficial to applied behavior analysts. And like, even though they're not gonna be experimental behavior analysts, the, the way of thinking, the way of doing research and then getting that core knowledge and philosophy of, of behaviorism and, and what we think we do and why we do it is really foundational and, and helpful and turn, makes them into better uh, teachers for sure. And, and most certainly better researchers.
0: Well, and even if you look at some of the names in the EAB program that you mentioned, There's a lot of translational research going on with those names as well, which is actually very important for the applied practitioners also. So I think that that's, I think the way that it's set up, it's, it's something very similar to me, how in my history, I went to Western Michigan. So it's very similar how, you know, how the program is set up, but I love hearing it because without, I mean, without... Being able to have the easy exposure to the different fields within our, you know, our umbrella overarching field, I, I would not be where I am.
1: Oh, for sure. You know, and it, it's like similar the way I was trained in the late 90s at the University of Nevada, Reno. You know, we we took a broad array of coursework from both conceptual, experimental and applied. And even though I knew all along that I was more drawn to the application side of things. I still draw on those experiences and that training that I had there and I think it's our, our, our field has become a little more segmented a little more separate uh, over the last 20 years and I think we really do need to put forth effort to make sure that people have that foundational training. And it also it works out really well for the experimental folks that are in that program to get applied experiences too, because it makes them uh, very much more marketable for the array of academic positions that are available. And, Again, making sure our students are together. We've, I've learned so much from those students and having the opportunity to have them work in my lab and in my clinical projects. And it goes both directions. My students gain so much when they take that experimental coursework and learn to stretch themselves in terms of their thinking and the way they, that they look at things. Uh, it, it's good. That's how we grow is, is when we're stretched, especially intellectually.
0: We've talked a lot about the faculty, the research, the practicum opportunities. Um, How about the student experience? You know, what can they expect or what are, you know, their expectations? we talked about a few of them, but what are, you know, what can they expect when they enter in to the program at Utah State?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. We do a good job of trying to orient them to the program. In fact, your first semester, you take a course, uh, a seminar course where you, all the first years from all the different disciplines are together in that course. And we have a a seasoned old emeritus professor who's been with the program, you know, for 35 years, who talks about just what the life of an academic is and what it means to be a doctoral student. Uh, You know, I mean, it's, it's like an orientation. We talk about, you know, library and how you access it and really practical things in addition to helping them kind of put their programs of study together, think about, you know, envision where you want to be when you leave, what are your goals and what are the things you need to to meet those goals and then they take those assignments, come back and discuss with their major professors, their primary advisors. And I think that's really a helpful thing. Um, in my lab too, specifically, and I know this happens in other labs, you know, I, I try and keep a constant flow of students coming in. And so I've got senior graduate students who can help serve as kind of um, junior mentors to the new graduate students. And we'll want students to get involved on on in their first couple of weeks on a research project helping somebody else run it Uh, while they are generating their own ideas and kind of the expectation is by the end of your first semester you've got a proposal into the IRB for review so you can start taking research but during that first semester you're already helping out other people on their projects and so uh, you're not only learning how to do research but also building a publication record that'll help you be competitive uh, when you graduate. the student experience, you know, as you were asking about. Um, Logan is an interesting place. It's a, And a lot of people hear the word Utah, and they're like, oh, Utah. Um, we let people think that because we don't want it to get too crowded. But Utah is actually a pretty amazing place. And, and Logan is one of my favorite spots in Utah. We're a small college town. There are about 100,000 people total in our town. Um, and about um, 25,000 of those are students. And so we make up a large portion of the population. Um, that being said, it's a super safe place and it's easy to live uh, up and I mean, rent was always was super cheap up until the last couple of years. Now it's just cheap, you know, comparatively, but it's uh, easy to live on your doctoral stipend here. Um, I've, none of my students even have roommates, you know, they have their own places. And, and, and so that's nice. If you like outdoors stuff, we're in a, a mountain valley. We're at like forty five hundred feet of elevation. If you like to ski, we've got a ski resort that's 30 minutes from your driveway. If you like to hike you can leave your hike i like to ride my mountain bike and i can leave from my house and be on like four different mountain bike trails without ever even putting my bike in my truck so quality of life is pretty high here uh which i don't know if that's necessarily a good thing for doctoral programs you want to live in a really boring place so you can be focused on your studies but that's not true you have to keep work-life balance and there are lots of opportunities for that we have a, um, there's a student graduate student representative that's a, kind of the head of the Graduate Student Association for our program that organizes uh, like student social events across all the disciplines. And so you get a chance to get to know the other uh, students, both the senior and junior, and they'll host little socials and things like that and get together and share experiences um, about how to do well in the program and what kind of things work well. So we work really hard to create kind of social networks, both within the individual labs and also across the, the broad program so that people feel connected. And even though we're a small college town, we're only an hour drive from Salt Lake City, which is a city of about a million people. You can do city stuff if you like to do city stuff. We're a hub for Delta and you can get anywhere in the United States in a relatively short period of time. So I think quality of student life is pretty high. Other things that we do for our students to make sure that they have a good experience is they'll get travel funding. Uh, We provide funding uh, to a conference each year um, which is nice. Uh, they can, we give them just a, a budget they can use. And if they want to live high on the hog, they can go to one conference they want to live cheaply. They can probably squeeze two conferences out of the budget, um, which is really nice. I remember when I was in grad school, I think I, I went to ABAI and I was sharing a room with like 10 other people and, uh, you know, eating beans from a can that I brought with me or something like that. Great.
0: Like my, mine was peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> so I completely understand that.
1: So like any good parent, I try and make life for my children better than I had it myself, you know. So that's what we we try to do. And it's it's great. That's an important way to network, you know, is to attend conferences. And that's one of the other competencies that I didn't mention earlier. You also have to do a conference presentation at a national level conference. So,
0: And I'm so happy you brought up about the location just because that, it, you know, that's a question we always ask. And like you said, people ask, you might see Utah. And have some preconceived notions, but those aren't necessarily all true. Um, it sounds no, you can't actually
1: you can't actually purchase alcohol here, you know in terms of is there a giant is there a giant club scene in Logan, Utah? there is not. Um, but you know, there are lots of other places. Uh, I'm not going to name any other names and locations of where other graduate programs are located, but I would just say I would stack up Logan, Utah against any of the other major programs in terms of uh, quality of life that we have in our city here. so. Uh, it's a great place to be in it's a The university is very much student focused and you know, the, the university has a large influence on the community at large. So because the university, you have many more kind of arts opportunities than you would normally in a town this size. Uh, you've got multiple theater companies, our own opera company uh, and all sorts of things to do if you're into that sort of entertainment. Um, so that's, that's really nice. Like I said, if you wanna go clubbing, you just get in your car and drive to Salt Lake, then that's fine.
0: Hey, I mean, at least there's the opportunity, right? That's Uh, right. There's an opportunity. It's probably not a bad opportunity to have a little bit further away, though, in your PhD. Focus, you got to focus. Yes. All right, so let's see. We've talked, we've heard a general overview of the program, but the faculty, the research, the practicum opportunities, the student experience, the location, is there, you know, is there anything else that you want to make sure to talk about regarding the university or the program specifically, or even the area as a whole? Um, I know we haven't necessarily talked about the application process yet. Um, is there anything you know specific to the application process for Utah State?
1: I mean, not really. It's pretty standard. You know, you get on the grad school website, you fill out the form, you pay them the money, and you got your application in. Um, i would if you if i can <clears throat> just take a couple minutes and, and and just make a pitch for why one might want to do a, a doctoral program or pursue doctoral study if that's okay
0: that is wonderful please do
1: so shauna some of your you know your listeners or viewers um, might be pretty happy as uh, bcbas uh, envisioning a life where that's kind of their their career path is, is directly serving clients, working within organizations, human service organizations, perhaps working their way up the administrative ladder if they want to, or opening their own business. I would like to put in a plug um, for a doctoral study, if I may, um, and talk with you about some of the kind of advantages and benefits of, of living that life. Now, doc programs are hard, there's no question about it. And, and, and they're hard for a reason, you know, because the job that we do as academics is a challenging job. Um, and it's important if someone's thinking about doctoral study that they understand that, that I'm, I'm dedicating X number of years of my life. So for our program, I'm dedicating four more years of my life to get this PhD. And, and you better know why you're doing that uh, and, and why you should be doing that is because, you know what? I want to advance my research skills, perhaps advance my clinical skills as well, but I'm really kind of—I see myself as wanting to work in higher education. You know, I want to be able to um, do what my professors did in the sense of how that kind of impact on people, and and that's what I really love about the job as of being a professor is uh, I get a chance to help people who are seeking to better themselves. You know, who are who are trying to advance their skills, who want to do things that they don't know how to do, uh, who are at the university because by their own choice, because they want to better themselves, and. And that's pretty darn rewarding. And to have the kind of impact where you train somebody who's then gonna go out and train other people uh, to where you know it's not just the people you can directly affect. And I, I'm a clinician at heart. That's, I, I didn't go straight into academia when I left my PhD program. I went and worked privately for three years in San Francisco and I had a blast. It was so much fun. I enjoyed it and I learned so much. I worked with hundreds of kids and they taught me so much, lots of other professionals. What drew me back to academia uh, was, the op- was the variability in the job, the chance that I get to do different things. I really missed teaching. I had done some teaching as part of my grad program and I missed being able to do that classroom teaching. I miss being able to do research, you know, cause it's really interesting and, and reinforcing to discover things and be able to share it. And I worked in a really cool clinical program, great program. Um, and I, I had hoped to do research, it was part of my role to do research, and it just ended up being really, really hard to get it done because there are just always practical constraints that seem to get in the way and push out that time that I would have dedicated towards research. So I came back for that reason, I wanted more of that balance. And uh, I've, I've never looked back, it's, it's a really rewarding career you know, to have the chance to, well, I, I also crafted a, a really unique position where I can still do clinical work, you know, by virtue of creating the, my, the assert autism program, I still get to go over there and play with the kids. I still get to go over there and, and do curriculum stuff. And, um, and so I get to do all the stuff that I really liked on my old job, my old clinical job, um, do it in a little bit different way here at the university. We won't pretend like we do it. We're in the real world. We're not, we can do things, and intentionally by design, we can do things in kind of this pristine, isolated environment to kind of develop techniques that we can then export out into the real world to handle real world problems. But it's—I find it to be super rewarding to have a chance to work with graduate students, people who, uh, who really want to make a difference, um, and it would kind of multiply the effect that I have, multiply my impact. Um, and so there'll be some of your listeners who who are really happy in their careers, you know, and are super interesting there will be some who, who feel a little draw. Like I want to learn more. I want to advance my skills. Maybe I want, uh, you know, I've had a great clinical life. Maybe it's time for me to to kind of get some more training and see if perhaps I might really like doing those sorts of things. Uh, and I'd encourage them to give it some thought and reach out and talk to professors in, in PhD programs, talk to other grad students and see if it's for you. Because Shauna, we need more professors. You know, the, the need for... BCBAs and bachelor's level professionals is not going away anytime soon. And, and we still don't have the capacity to train everybody we need to train. And so we need high quality people who can come and train practitioners to meet the needs of our consumers. Uh, and it's a great life. I, I've never doubted my decision. It's great. The the, the flexibility we it, it's what's ironic is, you know, we don't punch a time card. And we don't have billable hours. We, we we have perceived flexibility, but we work. Athletes is hard, if not harder than anybody else. Um, but it's, you had that feeling of freedom that, well, I could adjust my schedule if I needed to today. Uh, and I always had this freedom in the back of my mind that, man, if I decided I was not interested in, in doing early intervention work anymore, I, c- I could shift gears and do something else. Now, practically, of course, we know that rarely happens because, you know, we get a system set up and, and they work well. And the, f- the response effort to change course is fairly high. But um, I get to do enough different things that it keeps me interested and keeps me engaged and keeps me from getting bored. And I really, I really enjoy life here. And like I said, I even, know, even though I'm now primarily an administrator, you know, I don't teach nearly as many courses as I, as I did before. I still keep one undergraduate course because there's nothing more reinforcing than being the first exposure to behavior analysis to, to people. And to see their eyes just kind of open and think, wow, man, there's a possibility that this behavior can change, you know, that it's, this kid isn't this way just because he was born this way. And, you know, it's not the label it, there's a way forward, you know, it's really cool and really powerful. And so to think about doing that on all the different levels and helping create people who are going to do that for the people, you know, expand the influence. I can't think of any more rewarding career than that.
0: Well, and I have to agree with everything that you said. Um, I, after my master's program, you know, I, I went into the clinical world I did. And um, after three years, so sounds pretty similar. So far after three years, I decided I wanted to do something else. And um, I ended up where I am now, but I always had this drive to go back for my PhD. And, but it, it, it took me a long time. It took me years to find a program that I was interested in that, really had encompassed everything that I, you know, that I was personally looking for. It took a long time. Um, and I saw a very, very informal Facebook survey today in one of the ABA groups about burnout and how people were feeling and, you know, gave a, gave a Likert scale, And just from remembering from seeing it earlier today, there was 19% on just that very informal, you know, Facebook group post that said they need to get out of here. And I think there's a very big, sometimes people think that they need to completely switch up what they're doing. Um, I see a lot of questions often, you know, I'm on the social media groups a lot because of work to, you know, see what's going on. What are people talking about? What are they interested in? And there's a really big, like, push to, hey, how do I get into OBM? Oh, well, I can do OBM. Let me go, Let me just completely switch and go do OBM. That's not your only option. And I think you just told them that that's, you know, you reiterated that. That's not your only option. You can do more and do more of the things that you would like to do and the, the things that you're interested in by continuing your education. And PhD programs, they're hard, like you said, but they're not unattainable. They're not impossible. It's about finding the right faculty members, the right programs that are going to support you and be there for you because that is, and that's why it took me so long. It took me three years to find, to find the program that I also couldn't decide. So that's a testament to me. I want to do too many things. But um but you know what I mean that if you find the right program you can do exactly what you want to do and still have exactly what you know exactly what you just mentioned. You you've been able to create all of these systems and get exactly what you want. But also you're you know you're training future behavioral scientists as well to go out there and train others which is exactly what we need, so. Yeah, and you're right.
1: And it's, it's about finding the program uh, that's a good match for you. Um, and, uh, you know, my students work very, very hard, you know, and, um, but it's, it's an investment, you know, because I, as I tell them, you know, n- never in your professional life will you have the opportunity to get this intensity of experiences and intensity of feedback opportunity for feedback and coaching from again people who are already doing successfully the job that you want to do and so you have to look at it as an investment in terms of you know again if somebody for example who's got a you know a well-established clinical career and decided they might want to change direction think about you know thinking about turning off that salary supply for four years is maybe a daunting task and say but i the way i talk to my students like yeah we're going to pay you enough to live on and, and and be successful here. You're not going to be stocking away. You know, you're not going to be building your stock portfolio during these four years. But this is an investment in your future. You know, and I've yet to have one tell me that it was a bad investment. And those that go the clinical route or those that go into academia, you know, um, it's an investment because they they leave different people having had that intense feedback and intense experiences. And in addition, their networks are just so much bigger uh, when you come out. You know, I. My doc program, I still have some of my best friends uh, are are people that I went to school with, uh, you know, and we still connect at conferences. I still stay connected to all of my former students as well. And and I think I can speak on behalf of the other faculty. Uh, Once you're part of the the family, you're always part of the family and, and you can always call and ask for help and questions if you have it. And it's nice to have those professional networks to support you.
0: And I know I just mentioned this to you earlier, but I was like, yeah, I just talked to one of my previous faculty members earlier, like last week, just to catch up. So, um, and it it's just speaks to, you know, finding that program, taking the time to really find the program. Um, and that is, you know, that's why we started this podcast series in the first place was, you know, we, everybody knows about these really, you know, the really big, well-known programs, like that you and I went to, we went to Western, we went to UNR, you know, Kansas, but there's all of these other programs that may have exactly what you're looking for. If you just do a little bit extra digging. And, um, I'm so excited for people to hear this episode because you did an absolutely phenomenal job talking about it. And, you know, is there anything else I want to make sure? Is there anything else that you want to make sure to say about? I'm just trying that? to think.
1: I think one other thing i wanted to say though shauna was that even though our students work very hard in the program and it is an investment it doesn't mean that you can't still maintain a work-life balance uh, i've had students in my lab uh, who have gotten married during the program i've had students who have had children during the program and we've been able to work with them in a flexible way to make sure they're able to keep up with their studies uh, and still have the quality of life they want. So that's important to consider. Even though we work very hard, that doesn't mean there's not time to do those things that keep you psychologically healthy and that you achieve other life goals as well. I would offer just any, just getting back to general advice when you're looking for a program, obviously talk to the faculty who are in the program, but of course they're gonna tell you all the good things. If you really wanna know about a program, um, you know, ask for contact information for some of the current or former students of the program. And that's a great way to get a good feel for what day-to-day life was like in the program. And if it seems like it's a good match for you, your your the way that you learn best and, and the, the kind of your long-term career goals are. Because um, there is variability from program to program. and um, But I think, you know, we want people to be successful. And so, you know, i over the years I've gotten better at identifying people that would be a good fit for our program and so that selection process uh, you know and how it works for our department is probably like a lot of departments you know you apply uh, through the graduate school website you know there are certain minimum qualifications uh, you need to meet uh, we get that application as a program committee we review all those applications and see who uh, would be a likely match and then uh, in norm, during normal times, we'll bring people out here typically uh, for interviews to get to know them a little better and show them uh, what we do here just to verify um, that it's a good match. And then from there, we, we make offers. And here, uh, we don't make offers to people that we can't fund. And so all the students that we admit, um, those come with um, graduate assistantships, again, to cover their tuition and pay them a living stipend that lets them focus their time on their, their studies. Uh, and what that, what kind of work they do for that uh, assistantship varies really kind of depending on the lab and, and who they end up working with. But most of them end up doing some type of applied experience.
0: Well, and I mean, it's been absolutely amazing learning more about the program. and, and you know I want to thank you for your time today as well.
1: Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about, and so I was happy to do it. And if anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Know individually, I'd be happy to arrange a time to, to chat via email or Zoom to answer any questions you might have.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the University Series. And as always, if you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us at Innovations at ABAtechnologies.com.